sorry to everyone that's listening now. You know, I was just explaining to Jamie the the the, the real truth about Syria, but you mm. know, unfortunately, that wasn't recorded, so no one will ever know. Y'all aren't ready for that conversation. Absolutely not. Hmm. Yeah. So we're calling. We're how how are you doing today, Jamie? How are you doing? You know, I'm a little tired. I gotta yeah. say. Um, full disclosure: I'm freezing my eggs. Pew, 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 pew. Yeah. Uh, so all this week I've been getting these shots every day and the shots are making me very hormonal and crazy, but it's almost over. Oh, I only want to eat pizza. I'm like, is this what it's like to be pregnant? Damn. Um, yeah, but it's almost over. I just got um, I'm, I'm taking my trigger shot tonight. Like, whoa, triggered much? Yeah, trigger warning, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. And everybody. And that's going to make my ovaries release the eggs. And then I will freeze them, at which point they can be combined with Lenin's cryogenically frozen sperm to make a communist army. Yeah, folks, we're bringing them back. This is the announcement we've been waiting on. <laughs> we're bringing Lenin back. That's right. He's going to be back. It's going to be a weird, cool time. Especially considering, like, I don't even agree with him on a lot of stuff. So that'll be... That's how you know Jamie is down with the cause. Doesn't <laughs> really agree with, with him most of the time, but she's bringing him back. I mean, who would not... Who among us would not do that, given the chance to create an army of your babies with Lennon? Wow. Yep, yep. Or, you know, maybe throw a little Kropotkin sperm in there. Just kidding. Nobody froze him. <laughs> Isn't isn't there like a myth or like an urban legend that they froze Lenin's body or brain or something after he died? Without an urban legend, he he is frozen. He's literally like a mummified version that still is in display in Russia and right. Moscow. Like that's what I thought I was referring to. Like it's it's in Lenin's mausoleum. Like it's still there. He's well. So then his dick is there too. It's true. The Leftist in Theory podcast, where we do the reading so you don't have to. My name is Jorge Rocha. I'm Jamie Peck. And welcome to the show. And as Jamie said, we're covering part two of chapter four of Lenin's State and Revolution. That's right. Baby now, Daddy Lenin. It's true. Gonna now, put our kids in a bunch of bitches and take over the world. There we go. Epstein style. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, could you imagine if that was the plan all along? Mm. I'm going to plan Lenin. Oh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's funny to think about. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it says right here, freeze me and my and my and my sperm after I die, and a hundred years later, just let some some random witch in Bushwick get her eggs. <laughs> Dead ass. But anyway. He's you know, a smart guy. He's a smart guy. And we're going to talk about how he smart or not smart he was in this episode. That's right. Now, before we get into it, it's important to remind, you know, sorry to keep doing this, but it, we, have, we have to be doing this. If you like what you're hearing, be sure 
to subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash everybody loves communism or fans.fm slash everybody loves communism to get more content and support the show. And if you really like what you're hearing, be sure to give us five stars, five stars on the review on, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, because we like to know we're doing a good job. You know, if you want to criticize, go for it. But if you like what you hear, be sure to also give a good review because we want to know how well we're doing or not what we're doing. That's right. Just think of us like your Uber driver, you know? It's true. Like maybe it wasn't the best ride ever. Maybe you got a little nauseous, but you know what? You don't want to fuck over this person's livelihood. So you're going to give them five stars no matter what. Folks, listen to Jamie. (laughs) She's been doing this for far longer than I have. It's true. Now, let's begin the show. Section two, which is... The criticism of the draft of the Airfoot program. Very exciting title. I'm. I mean, I'm excited. Well, so okay. Question. Go for I, it. I, okay, so this is like more of a Jorge episode. The last one was more of a me episode. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just gonna be disruptive. Like I'm back on the majority report. All right. Um, but question, or you Go know what. It. This isn't a real question. It's more of a clarification for those listening. Oh, it's more of a comment, actually. (laughs) Oh, shit. Uh, You got me because I know the answer. But the Erfurt program, what relationship does this have to? uh, We we did an episode on critique of the Gotha program a while back. Are those are those the same thing? No, they are not. But they are related. So and in fact, now starting discussing in terms of what's happening. Lenin begins the second section by examining what Engels said about, you know, what we're talking about, the Airfoot program, which was the party platform of the Social Demokratische Party Deutschland, or the Social Democratic Party of Germany, SPD. Yes, the same SPD that exists right now in Germany. That was, and this was formally under the guidance of three people which whose names you've heard of at if you've been listening to our series on steam revolution you will know now edward bernstein august bebel and karl kotsky and this was adopted at the 1891 party congress at erfurt germany so to answer your question jamie the gotha program was the first party platform that the spd formed in the begin when when the party was formed that that was what Marx was criticizing, and if you want to know more about that, be sure to listen to our episode with Jamie and Aaron about the critique of the growth of program, where they talk about it, and also an additional episode with Jasper Jasper Burns with that, with talking about that. But point being, that was formed, that was the initial platform, and this replaced that. All right. I feel like I got that wrong in the past for some reason, <laughs> but I'm glad that you clarified. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it just basically, I mean... We were talking about this before we were recording, but, you know, such an important aspect with this reading theory and also understanding the history of socialism and communism and anarchism and all these other movements is that there is just so much context that is lost that if you don't do additional research than exists within the text, it just you just don't know what's going on. Yeah. It's like, oh, go to the program. Okay. Airfoot program was like, are you just like naming shit? Are you just, and you're like saying Kotsky, Bernstein, you know, Panikuk. You're like saying all these names. You're like, what is going on? Who's on first? What's on second? (laughs) Yeah, it can be confusing. Turns out a lot of things have happened. And 
most of the things that have happened in history are connected to a lot of other things that have happened. History do be happening. So like, that's a lot. That's a lot there. Yeah. So to kind of return to the text, Lenin makes a quick note on exceedingly valuable observation on economic question. This is a quote from the passage that Engels made when discussing the Erfurt program. Engels claims this program had a certain, and this is Engels' term, planlessness, which he viewed as a characteristic of capitalism and not socialism. Ooh, the Erfurt program does not have a plan for that. No, and it, it, it did not pass his litmus test, if I may say so. You know, and the Engels quote Lenin uses is, and this is a quote, when we pass from joint stock companies to trusts, which assume control over and monopolize whole industries, it is not only private production that ceases, but also planlessness, unquote. Okay, question. Go for it. Is he saying that the phase of capitalism Mm -hmm. where we have all these giant monopolistic trusts. Yeah, monopoly capitalism. Is he saying, it sounds like he's saying that it's moving capitalism out of its more anarchic planless phase Mm -hmm. and into maybe even paving the way for a planned economy. Like I'm thinking about uh, the people's Republic of Walmart as like a more recent example Mm. where they sort of make the case for that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's explicitly what they're saying in this, like they being Lenin is saying that Engels is saying that an important aspect of capitalism is that there is this kind of like even if there are plans occurring it only exists within the context of the enterprise you know your reference like the people's republic of walmart like that argument like even in the argument they're making is that walmart or like amazon or these large monopol monopolistic enterprises have planned economies but that's only within the context of themselves just if you have these large firms existing everywhere and they all they have these plans. They still only exist within themselves. And then, so you have all these competing plans that exist in the economy. Mm-hmm. So what's being claimed here is that if you kind of own all of this together, you can then start considering the planning of production on as, you know, production in the economy as a whole. So... To continue on with the text, in other words, Engels is saying an important characteristic of socialism is the means to carefully plan what production is done in a society. Lenin makes a reference to his own theory of imperialism, what he considers as the latest manifestation of capitalism, basically monopoly capitalism, kind of what we're talking about. Lenin makes sure to mention this, because he claims reformists of his day say that the state, say if the state owned the monopoly capitalist enterprises, you know, in other words, something known as state monopoly capitalism, then this is no longer capitalism, but rather state socialism. This is what Lenin is saying that these reformists of his day were saying. Socialism is when the government owns stuff. Everybody right. knows that. But according to Lenin, The central reason why these enterprises cannot cease to be considered capitalist is because they cannot truly provide what Lenin terms complete planning or of what is the, and this is a great phrase, volume of production. 
So it's not just the government does stuff. It, there has to be a bit more than just that. That needs to be occurring. I mean, there's also money involved. It's true. But I feel as, like that's pretty capitalist. I mean, I think that's kind of his point, right? It's like because it's still an, an anarchic, there needs to be something that ties it together. That's why money is an aspect that ties the economy together. Mm-hmm. But if there's complete planning, why do you need the money? Indeed. So Lenin points out to how the power these enterprises have in being able to plan in the capacity that they do. And this is a quote should serve genuine representatives of the proletariat as an argument proving the proximity, facility, feasibility, and urgency of the socialist revolution, unquote. In other words, monopoly capitalist enterprises prove how close we are to socialism as a mode of production with what means socialism will come about and how socialism is even possible. This is different from what Lenin claims the reformers are trying to do by, quote, repudiating a socialist revolution and making capitalism look more attractive. Okay, so when he talks about the volume of production, yeah, um, what does that mean? Is it one of those uh, dialectical magic magics where something... Become, converts from quality into from quantity into quality, right? Like when if the government say just I don't know expropriates some gas and oil companies, then that's still not socialism. But if the we got a worker state and it owns everything and then it can completely plan the economy, then that ceases to be uh you know social democracy and crosses the line into socialism, something like that. A little bit. I mean, I think what he's saying when he says volume production is he's just referring to there is a certain amount of capacity in the economy. You know, think about all the factories that exist in the in the in the, in the economy that produce, say, I don't know, like toys or something. There are so many of those factories. What is the total amount of production that's occurring? If you kind of view like how much is being turned out in the economy of those toys, what is the volume of that production? That's kind of what he's referring to. So it's when he's referring to volume of production, he's just more referring to that kind of aggregate of everything that's occurring in particular moment in production. The complete planning is of that. Yeah, it's complete. Yeah. So it's like... A, the complete planning, I would say, is closer to like the dialectical portion of what you're referring to, but it's not necessarily about the volume of production. You know, I think Engels or Lenin, or at least what Lenin claims Engels is saying, they would say, well, volume of production is something that's occurring in a capitalist economy anyway. It's just whether or not there's complete planning involved of that volume of production, because everything is being created with exchange value in mind rather than use value. All right. All right. Does that make sense or? I guess so. I don't know. Sure. Yeah. Um, it's planning everything is the point. Yes. And that's what makes it complete. Yes. But that's kind of a digression. You just kind of wanted to make a reference to it. Oh, okay. So after this digression regarding economic questions by Engels, you know, kind of we told you from part one, you know, it's a little bit all over the place with a bunch of references by Engels that Len is making here. Kind of just, he's just, you know, he's just riffing a little bit. Mm-hmm. So Lenin recenters us on the question of the state, and he claims Engels makes three suggestions in his letter to Kotsky. And for reference, Lenin 
sorry, not Lenin. Engels is writing a letter to Kotsky about his criticisms about the Erfurt program. That's what Lenin is referring to in, his, in, in all these quotes. Quote, first, in regard to the republic. Second, in regard to the connection between the national question and state organization. And third, in regard to local self-government. This is what Lenin is saying, that these are the three things that Engels focused on. So, what Engels said on the republic, in other words, the form of government making up most liberal democracies. He made this the focal point of what he criticized in the Erfurt program. It is important to remember in what esteem the Erfurt program was held by the social democrats around the world at that time, and later even became the model for the whole Second International. Thus, Lenin claimed Engels is criticizing, quote, the opportunism of the whole Second International, unquote. And just this is kind of quote from the passage. The political demands of the draft, Engels wrote, have one great fault. It lacks precisely what should have been said. Now, damn. Yeah, it's just like it's just not. Yeah, you the said a lot. The thing that's wrong with it is that it sucks. Yeah, you just, basically. You said a you said a lot. There's a lot of words in it, but what, you didn't say anything. Mm. I mean, look, I've had that same criticism about some things, so Yeah. It it it's it's I get true. It. I mean, it's kind of just saying it's like, you know, your 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 program is just kind of like just some college freshman just trying to like write some trying to fill up some words to turn in a final essay. The problem with it is that it doesn't have what it should have in it. Damn. It's literally what he's saying. That's that's great. Wait, wait, wait. Okay. Back up for a second though. Sure. Should we define the Republic now or should we do that in a minute? Because I feel like we're about to talk about it, but maybe. I mean, Lenin doesn't really go into much further detail as to what it is. It seems that he just means like Republic being like liberal democracy that exists in many Western countries. All right. Like that's just what he means by Republic in this context. Congress, Parliament, yep. shit like that. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty much what he, what he means by Republic in All this right, context. All right, cool. It's pretty straightforward. It's kind of the only thing. Like, he doesn't make more reference than that in terms of, like, defining it. All right. So, given the SPD is a German political party, and at this time, Germany would, is Germany, not Prussia. This is after the Franco-Prussian War. This is in the 1870s. So... And Germany was unified. Engels makes a commentary on the German constitution of that time. Specifically, he states how it is merely a copy of the German constitution of 1850, which was extremely reactionary in Engels' words, and how the Reichstag, or the German parliament, as organized, was merely the, quote, fig leaf of absolutism, unquote. Damn. So... In other words, to transform Germany into a socialist country or, quote, transform all the instruments of labor into common property, unquote, with a constitution that allows for petty states and a, quote, federation of petty German states is an obvious absurdity, unquote. What does Engels mean by this? So I'm a little confused because it 
like I'm with him in the first part where he's like, you had me in the first half. <laughs> yeah. This is basically, it's a constitutional monarchy. This, um, parliament is bullshit or whatever. It's not really a democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, and to make it into a democracy or a social democracy uh-huh. or even something more than that, uh, you got to stop letting these petty states, these these federated areas do their own thing. Right. Like, what's the connection there? To put it simply, it's just Lenin is making the argument that Engels, like he's saying that Engels said this, but obviously it benefits Lenin's political theory. He's making the claim that centralization is better than decentralized in this moment in time. Not saying that... He doesn't want the abolition of the state. You know, it's clear that Lenin's made multiple made the made the said multiple times that the end goal is to get rid of the state. But what he's saying is that in the process of a socialist transformation, the state must centralize first. All right. Well, what does that have to do with uh, getting rid of absolutism in the monarchy? Then that's a good question that I'm not too sure about, Jamie. And we'll read more and we'll find all right, out. All right. Side, we'll make a note. We'll make a note. I mean, it, it's, from what I understand, the reason why it has to do with absolutism is because it kind of goes back to Lenin's conception of the state. Who is in charge of the state? And like, what is the state? It's like, it's like the manifestation of class rule in society. So the reason is absolutism in the context of the monarchy is that, well, it's not the working class is in charge. So that's why it's absolutism. Well, the monarchy is pretty fucking centralized. Right. But the problem is that it's not that the problem with the state as it exists is not merely that it's centralized, but rather it needs to be. It's not centralized, but also centralized. It's centralized in the way that power manifests in the state, but it's also not nearly as centralized because one, as Lenin's saying, there are these petty states in Germany, mm-hmm. but also the economy is not underneath like – it's not, the economy is not centralized. There are all these different companies that exist on their own. So it's not really centralized. That's why. That's why I think Lenin would say. All right. All right. So here's a long quote from 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 the from well the passage that comes from what Engels saying. Quote to touch on that is dangerous. However, Engels added, knowing only too well that it was impossible legally to include in the program the demand for a republic in Germany, but. He refused to merely accept this obvious consideration, which satisfied everybody. He continued, nevertheless, somehow or other, the thing has to be attacked. How necessary this is, is shown precisely at the present time by opportunism, which is gaining ground in a large section of the social democrat press. Fearing a renewal of the anti-socialist law or recalling all manner of over-hasty pronouncements made during the reign of that law, they now want the party to find the present legal order in Germany adequate for putting through old party demands by peaceful means, unquote. So, Engels points out how the SPD is reacting to a potential renewal of the anti-socialist law as merely opportunism. Now, what is the anti-socialist law? This was something that occurred a few years prior in Germany when – and this is something that was pursued by conservatives in Germany, including Otto von Bismarck, when it seemed apparent that the SPD was gaining power and momentum in Germany. 
they, you know, they're starting to see the socialists are starting to, you know, gaining power and getting people are, like people are starting to listen to them. We need to do something about this. And they used as not entirely, but partly two things as, you know, from what I understand, and we could eventually make an episode talking about this more in detail. But point being, there are two aspects from what I remember were the central thing that kind of pushed them to wanting to pass this law. One was the SPD was very sympathetic openly of the Paris Commune. And they were saying, Paris Commune, pretty good, pretty based. We like that. And then that was used like, oh, you're supporting interactionary activities. But also, there were not one, but two um, attempted assassination of the Kaiser in Germany at that time by anarchists. So they're saying, oh, you support this insurrectionary activity in this other country, but then also look at what's going on in our country. Y'all are too dangerous to not be, to be allowed to congregate. And that include basically they banned publications talking about social democracy. They, they, they banned the allowing of socialists to congregate. But very quickly, those laws got uh, revoked because there was a lot of backlash. And but that's kind of like a very very large overview. I don't know the full details entirely, to be honest with you. But that's from my understanding that I know. We will talk about it in more detail in some future episode. Never underestimate the threat of a good example. It's true. So. Given there was no republic and no freedom in Germany, the dreams of a peaceful path to socialism were perfectly absurd. This is what Lenin's saying. And Engels emphasizes how, and it's like a long quote, in Germany, where the government is almost omnipotent and the Reichstag and all other representative bodies have no real power, to advocate such a thing in Germany, where moreover, there is no need to do so, means removing the fig leaf from absolutism and becoming oneself a screen for its nakedness, oh. unquote. So Lenin claims that the great majority of the official leaders of the German Social Democratic Party, which pigeonholed this advice, have really proved to be a screen for absolutism. So what's Lenin saying here? Lenin, they're asking for a republic? I think what Lenin's saying is just like, because you're not questioning the fundamental base of the state that exists in Germany. You're basically saying, we're just going to reform our way to socialism the way that the state is as it exists. You still, at its core, are allowing for... Remember, Engels is saying that the constitution of that republic in Germany at that time was still reactionary. So you're not questioning the fundamental element of the state as it existed. And you're just going to, oh, we're going to do a little tweaks here and there and going to slowly make over to socialism. You are still, you're in fact, and London doesn't say this, but based on what, 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 what we've read, it would, what Lenin seems would, would say, at least how I'm interpreting it is you are, by doing this and not questioning the fundamental aspects of the state as it exists, and you're just going through the motions of the election, and you are legitimizing the state and continuing it to persist as it exists yeah. right now. So you're not – you're just like, oh, we're going to peacefully become socialist, but the state is still very reactionary as it exists. You know – it sounds like 
stuff we talk about today. Like, yeah, I guess I guess the United States is a little more of a liberal democracy than Germany was at this point in time. But still, like, I I really don't think it's possible to get to socialism via a, a body that exists, you know, in large part to keep workers from gaining too much power. It's yeah. just not how it's ever going to work. Yeah. And also, like, you know, the United States at its foundation was a republic built upon, you know, settler colonialism and was the explicit intent of maintaining of power of the people who have money from to and make sure that those that don't, like you just said, Jamie, workers, not get power. So if that's like the foundation and that's the exist of our wonderful, glorious constitution that people prop up as like, oh, yeah, it's so great. We've had it for two centuries, which is like, why is that a good thing? It's like, as like, like that should not be a virtue unto itself. Mm-mm. But, you know, that that's like the foundation. You, It's hard to argue you can just have socialism as just going through the motions of that. You have to change something fundamental in the state. I agree. So, Angles continues. Quote, In the long run, such a policy can only lead one's own party astray. Wow. They push general, abstract political questions into the foreground, thereby concealing the immediate concrete questions, which at the moment of the first great events, the first political crisis, automatically pose themselves. What can result from this except that at the decisive moment, the party suddenly proves the helpless and that uncertainty and discord on the most decisive issues reign in it because these issues have never been discussed. Unquote. Well, actually, apologies. There's going to be two more, two more quotes after this. This forgetting of the great, the principal considerations for the momentary interest of the day, this struggling and striving for the success of the moment, regardless of later consequences, this sacrifice of the future of the movement for its present may be honestly meant, but it is and remains opportunism. And honest opportunism is perhaps the most dangerous of all. This is a really important point, I think, because a lot of the time people want to make opportunism about uh, people's motivations for doing something like, oh, well, this person, they genuinely think they're doing the right thing to sacrifice this larger movement to unfuck the world for some, you know, minor, temporary, uh, short term gain. And guess what? It doesn't matter why they're doing it. It still functions in an opportunistic way. I mean, let's look at World War One, right? The socialists in Germany and the socialists in France both were being honest in their intentions of trying to be like, listen, we want socialism and they did believe in socialism, but we need to opportunistically allow for this war to continue because we do not want to lose any gains that exist within our own country. And guess what? You had the party, the Socialist Party in Germany and the Socialist Party in France at opposite sides of a war that was based on imperialist means. 
that's what you get for being an opportunist. You are not doing the work of international solidarity. That is just one example. Mm -hmm. Never vote for the war credits, P.S. It never ends well for the socialists. No. So this last quote before we kind of do some more analysis. If one thing is certain, it is that our party and the working class can only come to power in the form of the Democratic Republic. This is even the specific form for the dictatorship of the proletariat as the great French Revolution has already shown. It's an interesting quote. Lenin claims Engels realized here something which he claims ran through all of Marx's works, which is that the Democratic Republic as a form of government is the nearest existing form of government thus far to be a dictatorship of the proletariat. Very interesting point. So, if such a republic exists and the rule of capital is not abolished, basically, the democratic republic exists, but you still have capital existing as like a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. We're talking about liberal democracy? Yep, liberal democracy. All right. And thus, the oppression of the masses and the class struggle persists. Then, the contradictions in such a society where there is a nominal democracy, but real dictatorship by the minority, in other words, a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, because capital still continues, (laughs) this will, quote, inevitably lead to such an extension, development, unfolding, and intensification of class struggles that this possibility is realized inevitably and solely through the dictatorship of the proletariat, unquote. Now, Lenin claims that these were the forgotten words of Marxism for the whole of the Second International, since they were reformist and opportunist organization. This kind of reminds us a bit, if we kind of go back a bit in terms of like what Lenin was saying about the opportunists of his day, of people saying, like Kotsky and other reformists and opportunists saying that, well, these people will have you believe that the most important part of Marxism is the existence of class struggle. And it's like, no, that is not the most important thing. The most important thing is that there needs to be a socialist transformation. There needs to be a revolutionary project that must reimagine society as it exists to form a new one. Fucking dead ass. Okay, but question about this quote. Um, Do we believe this? (laughs) Or is it still too soon to tell? Which part is there to not believe or to believe? The kind of uh, dialectical determinism, shall we say, that um, just the existence of these contradictions within class society will inevitably lead to the intensification of class struggle and, you know, maybe ultimately the, the resolution of it by through socialism like from our from our you know in in this year of our lord 2022 i am starting to wonder if that's true so i think you know kind of we talked about this in the last episode in part one we have like this bias of history we know how this played out from when lennon wrote in 1917 that it wasn't inevitable, right, that socialism would just happen. And in fact, when, you know, depending on whether you believe the Soviet Union was socialist, I'd like to think that at least somewhat it was. Just because 
it happened doesn't mean it can't be reversed. Mm. So I think that the way you can interpret this, given those facts, I think, you know, Lennon did not know how it would play out. But I think the way you can interpret it and still keep to what is being said is for these kind of antagonisms to kind of resolve itself, there must be a dictatorship of the proletariat. But I would say that does not necessarily mean that is the only way to resolve it. You know, I'm going to say I partially agree in that these contradictions are definitely causing stuff to happen. Mm -hmm. Whether or not that stuff leads to socialism. Stuff do be happening. (laughs) I think it's an open question, but stuff is def. I will, I will give it, I will give him that stuff is definitely happening. Shit. Shit is, (laughs) it's getting real. Yeah. It's getting real two years into a pandemic and especially one that the U.S. has done not much, if anything at all, to mm-hmm. really contain it because the vaccines, there's great work, credit where credit's due. And, but it seems like a lot of that progress has stepped back a bit. So, and it's even a question as to, will this even end at some point? So... And then also stuff regarding wealth inequality, stuff regarding the police, stuff regarding climate change. A lot of shit's going down in this republic of the United States. Yeah. Hopefully even more stuff will go down. Damn. I mean, the good kind, the the, the class struggle kind. There are decades... um, There are decades where you fuck around and 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 there are weeks where you find out. That's true. So, and apologies at a time, because it's going to be a long quote. Here's what Engels wrote regarding a federal republic and the population of a nation. So it's going to be a long quote. Bear with me. What should take the place of the present-day Germany with its reactionary monarchical constitution and its equally reactionary division into petty states? A division which perpetuates all the specific features of Prussianism instead of dissolving them in Germany as a whole. In my view, the proletariat can only use the form of the one and indivisible republic. In the gigantic territory of the United States, a federal republic is still, on the whole, a necessity. Although, in the eastern states, it is already becoming a hindrance. Yeah, go off, Engels. It would be a step forward in Britain, where the two islands are peopled by four nations and, in spite of a large parliament, three different systems of legislation already exist side by side. In Little Switzerland, it has long been a hindrance, tolerable only because Switzerland is content to be a purely passive member of the European state system. For Germany, federalization on the Swiss model would be an enormous step backward. Two points distinguish a union state from a completely unified state. First, that each member state, each canton, has its own civil and criminal legislative and judicial system. And second, that alongside a popular chamber, there is also a federal chamber in which each canton, whether large or small, votes as such. In Germany, the union state is the transition to the completely unified state and the 
revolution from above of 1866 and 1870 must not be reversed by but must not be reversed but supplemented by a movement from below end of the long quote so lenin is keen to note that engels was not indifferent to the form of the state and rather was focused on analyzing the transitional forms the state can take on but made sure to do Quote, in accordance with the concrete historical peculiarities of each particular case, from what and to what the given transitional form is passing, unquote. As a method of analysis, historical materialism requires us to consider the particular conditions in which a certain society existed and derive truth given those facts, rather than projecting abstract idealist principles onto existing reality. That's right. We are materialists first and foremost. It's true. And we have to look at what was happening and then consider what to do given what was happening. Mm -hmm. So given what Engels had mentioned about the Federal Republic, Lenin claims Engels, and it's going to be an interesting thing we're going to be moving into. Lenin claims Engels, like Marx, upheld, quote, democratic centralism because he regarded the Federal Republic either as an exception and a hindrance to development or as a transition from a monarchy to a centralized republic as a step forward under certain special conditions, unquote. So, do you have any, do you have a question, Jamie? So, which is it? What do you mean? How could it be both? I guess, okay, so he's saying the federal republic is sometimes a step forward and sometimes a hindrance to further development. I mean, couldn't it be both? Well, that's well. He, he's making right? like, he's he making he's making it is both. It's like a hindrance, liberal but, democracy is better than you know having a king, I right. guess, on some level, but right. still not as good as uh, socialism. Folks, you know what that is? Dialectics. Holy shit! <laughs> it's both good and bad. Wow. Wow. Lenin makes a quick note about these certain special conditions that to kind of to your point, Jamie, you know, when is it kind of good? He maintains it is necessary in certain societies to not brush aside the national question for such a debate has not been settled in these societies. An example he brings up is like the United Kingdom. Well, now we call it the United Kingdom, but back then Britain, because there are these several nations that existed there. The not so United Kingdom. Yeah. I mean... That would be something that Lenin would say because they did not settle the national question. Now they're having real problems. They're not, they haven't dealt with like troubles, one might say. Yeah, it's true. And so all that was going on. But also, you know, a question of like, you know, is Scotland going to leave the United Kingdom? Is Wales going to leave the United Kingdom? Is it now just going to be this tiny little pathetic smidge of an island? Settle your shit, guys. Yeah, get your affairs in order before you start questioning other people, okay? <laughs> so, now, what does Lenin mean here by democratic centralism? He claims, Engels, quote, did not at all mean democratic centralism in the bureaucratic sense in which the term is used by bourgeois and petty bourgeois ideologists, the anarchist among them, he's still shooting at the anarchist as he does. Jeez. His idea of centralism did not in the least preclude such broad 
local self-government as would combine the voluntary defense of the unity of the state by the communes and districts and the complete elimination of all bureaucratic practices and all ordering from above, unquote. In other words, within the context of the state, democratic centralism, according to Lenin, means the ability to have a revolution from above while supplementing it with a revolution from below. In other words, the ability to centralize the means of production and plan the volume of production at scale while simultaneously allowing for parliamentary democracy to be abolished by deciding and executing locally. All right. This seems like it's pretty similar to what the anarchists wanted, actually. And I feel like the devil's in the details. Uh, And maybe the disagreement is in the details of how it was carried out. Also, totally. I feel like, you know, if you don't want the anarchists to criticize um, democratic centralism in the bureaucratic sense, which is to say, you know, the state as defined in other ways than simply, uh, you know, organized use of force. Um, maybe don't like they were responding to things he was doing in the bureaucratic sense. I mean, look, I think I think I agree with what you're saying in a sense that it has to do with like how it plays out in actuality in terms yeah. of the implementation. That being said, I think this part right here is quite important because here you're kind of seeing the contours of what he means by the withering away of the state. All right. Like, you know what I mean? Maybe. Like that, that revolution from below having that existing simultaneously is what's allowing that over time that, because if you centralize the mean to production society from above and then you're slowly, slowly having like the stuff happening locally and doing it lo- locally from a below, and it's starting to happen more and more at and scale. That, that'll like overtake the from above aspects. Yeah, of it. and then it just withers away. Right. I I see. No, I see what he's saying. I, it it does sound quite similar to what I've read uh, certain anarchists say. Folks, we're 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 converging. Oh boy. I mean, really though. Like, a lot of this shit seems like it can be reconciled. And maybe a lot of the disagreements is just, like, guys, egos, you know? <laughs> I think that's totally possible. Maybe they maybe they should have just hugged it out. But just, I guess we'll find out more. You, so you're saying go. that the way that they resolved this should have been just dudes being dudes and pals being pals? Dudes rock. Just, just You think they should have had a dudes rock moment? Yeah. Just been like, yo, what if we just, like, vibe, bro? Well, maybe we can do that together now. Damn. A little a little late in the game, but better late than never. Yeah. Just have just have a quick fourth quarter turnaround. Yeah. It's like, oh, you thought you thought us you had us in the first half? Guess what? We're back. <laughs> we, we we had a timeout, we went to the locker room, we had a we had a quick huddle. We're back we're back in the game. That's what we're doing. So carrying forward the program views of Marxism on the state, Engels wrote, and it is another long quote. Apologies. So then, a unified republic, but not in the sense of the present French Republic, which is nothing but the empire established in 1798 without the emperor. This is, I think Engels is referring to the third French Republic under Adolf Thiers. From 1792 to 1798, each French department, each commune, enjoyed complete self-government on the American model, 
and this is what we too must have. How self-government is to be organized and how we can manage without a bureaucracy has been shown to us by America and the First French Republic and is being shown even today by Australia, Canada, and the other English colonies. It's a little yikes for me personally, <laughs> but let's move on. Did they really not have bureaucracies there? And also using the blessing of English colonies. I'm like, mm, yeah, I don't know about that one, chief. Mm-mm. But let's move past it. <laughs> and the provisional, regional, and communal self-government of this type is far freer than, for instance, Swiss federalism, under which, it is true, the canton is very independent in relation to the Bund, in other words, the federated state as a whole, but is also independent in relation to this district and the commune. The cantonal governments appoint the district governors and prefects, which is unknown in English-speaking countries and which we want to abolish here as resultly in the future as the Prussian Landrate and Reigesgrungstreit, commissioners, district police chiefs, governors, and in general, all elected officials appointed from above. Now, accordingly, Engels proposes in the following words for the self-government clause in the program. Complete self-government for the provinces, gubiernas or regions, districts and communes through officials elected by universal suffrage. The abolition of all local and provisional authorities appointed by the state. So what do we think about this? It's a little, little, little bit convoluted, but what do we think? I'm a little confused what the difference is between the cantons and the districts and the prefects and all all that stuff. I'm also confused about if federalism is good or bad now. Well, he's angles is making the claim that federalism is worse than, say, unifying, having like a unified state because it cre- federalism would create more bureaucracy is what Engels is claiming. But then he says right there that you shouldn't have local and provincial authorities appointed by the state, that they should be elected by the people who live there, right? Right, exactly. But the point he's making is that that should all be part of the larger state, not just have these little states occurring throughout. So an example would be in the United States, there are like 50 state legislatures because each state has its own legislature and then there's one large federal legislature. Engels would make the claim that no, there should just be one large legislature occurring that is for the entire country, but then also have a system occurring locally, but that is tied to the larger thing. So it seems like Engels is kind of imagining this initial like there's these council locally happening and then from there up you're electing people all the way up to the larger state there i say a union of soviets oh shit all right so there's like you know there's all the parts but they're connected to each other exactly which again is kind of similar to an anarchist federation but Maybe we'll see what the difference is as we go. Yeah. So that was the end of this section of like this part of the section. The next part of the section is the 1891 preface 
to Marx's The Civil War in France. So Lenin is going to be quoting from this preface that Engels wrote for this part on the Civil War in France. In order to focus on – and so before we get into it, if we remember what Lenin was saying that Engels was saying, it's like the Engels – the lesson that needs to be learned is like Engels talked about the Federal Republic. Then he talked about the relationship of the national question with the Federal Republic and also self-governance locally. This last part we talked about was about the self-governance occurring locally, but this next part, this next section, we're going to expand more on that by looking into what Engels said in the preface to the Civil War in France. So in order to focus on what local self-government looks like, Lenin turns to what Engels said in this preface to the third edition of the Civil War in France, dated March 18th, 1891, on the Paris Commune. Quote, In France, Engels observed... The workers emerged with arms from every revolution. Quote, Therefore, the disarming of the workers was the first commandment of the bourgeois who were at the helm of the state. Hence, after every revolution won by the workers, a new struggle, ending with the defeat of the workers. Unquote. Lenin claimed this is a summary of the experience of bourgeois revolution of the past 20 years. Here, Lenin makes a quick, like, tangent discussing the contemporary events that occurred in his own time of in 1917 of what he says was a betrayal by the socialist revolutionaries and Mensheviks of the proletariat at that time because they chose, rather than pushing forward a total change of what was the, of the state of that time, and allowing for the workers to take arms against that state, the social revolutionaries and Mensheviks explicitly told workers to disarm, to stop. We've done what we need to do. We're, it's, we're good. We're handled it here. Kind of like, we're the adults in the room. Go home. We got this. And that's one aspect kind of what Lenin's saying about that. There's a lot of tangent that Lenin points towards regarding the position that the SPD had towards religion. I don't really want to go into it because it seems kind of unrelated to the larger point we're kind of getting at, and it's not really relevant to what we're discussing here. But here are the lessons to which Engels attached prime importance for the Paris Commune to kind of go back to the point of this section. Kind of what I was saying before, Lenin's riffing a little bit. So here is this long quote that Engels did in terms of that Lenin point grabbed from in terms of what Engels said about why the Paris Commune was really important. Quote, It was precisely the oppressing power of the former centralized government, army, political powers, bureaucracy, which Napoleon had created in 1798, and which every new government had since then taken over as a welcome instrument and used against its opponents. It was this power which was to fall everywhere, just as it had fallen in Paris. From the very outset, the commune had to recognize that the working class, once in power, could not go on managing with the old state machine, that in order not to lose again its only just gained supremacy, this working class must, on the one hand, do away with all the old machinery of oppression previously used against itself and, on the other, safeguard itself against 
its own deputies and officials by declaring them all, without exception, subject to recall at any time. Unquote. So what do we think, Jamie, about that quote? Yeah, I mean, there need to be a bunch of measures that make the government actually accountable to the people. Right. Obviously, including um, being subject to recall at any time. Of course, we know that that on its own is not enough no. because we have that here. We have a little thing called the recall for governors. And uh, how how effective do you think that's been? I don't know what we're talking about, Jamie. I mean, democracy works. We got rid of Governor Cuomo in New York State. I don't oh, know what you're talking man. about. Clearly, <laughs> clearly, clearly the rule of law and the people prevailed mm. last year in mm-hmm. 2021 when we got oh, rid of boy. Governor Cuomo. Oh, boy. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I yeah, I mean, clear that the recall is not sufficient and also – can be used very cynically. Look at yes. the history of governor recall. Like after recalls of governors in California was introduced, it's been used for very cynical reasons, not for any actual accountability, but rather to replace somewhat, you know, left-friendly liberal Democrats with more business-friendly reactionary conservative Republicans. Yeah, that's been it. I mean, that's how, you know, Governor Schwarzenegger happened in California because he came about from a cynical recall of a governor at that time. Mm. Now, not to suggest that that governor was some model of virtue, but it was clear at that time that it was cynically used to replace him with a Republican more closer with business interests at that time. So, like, I don't know. I think it's good to have. Obviously, to have if we're going to do representative democracy, which, you know, maybe we'll get into like some of the critiques of that itself. If we read like Bordiga or something, um, which we shall at some point. Yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. We're actually going to read Bordiga. He's not just a meme, folks. He's a real guy. Who we wrote found shit. him under our couch, folks. We found him. He was he was he was he was ah. he, he became such a left calm. He just just went under just joking. Love out to all my left comms, even though all, I do not agree. All 10 of them that we know. Um, all, I know our I friends like that we see at parties sometimes. I probably know more than 10. I don't know. I agree with them on some stuff. But um, anyway, yeah, if you're going to have representative democracy, good to make it recallable. But also, you know, you still got to vanquish all the other forces um, that would make that a tool that can fall into the wrong hands. So to kind of move forward, Engels emphasized the state under a monarchy and republic that the state remains a state. Why is this point important? Well, let's look at the quote. Against this transformation of the state and the organs of the state from servants of society into masters of society, in other, in other words, from a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie to a dictatorship of the proletariat, an inevitable transformation in all previous states, the commune used two infallible means. In the first place, it filled all posts, administrative, judicial, and educational, by election on the basis of universal suffrage of all concerned, subject to recall at any time by the electors. And in the second place, it paid all officials, high or low, only the wages received by other workers, 
the highest salary paid by the commune to anyone was 6,000 francs. In this way, a dependable barrier to place hunting and careerism was set up, even apart from the binding mandates to delegate to representative bodies, which were added besides. Mm. Now, the point with this quote is that there needs to be consistent democracy. Important emphasis on consistent for there to for socialism to manifest. Uh, important part here in the quote is kind of like the first part, which is the, the first point that Engels is pointing to, which the Paris Commune did that was different from, say, federal, Repu- federal republic or monarchy, that all the posts of bureaucracy were elected. Which is a little different than, say, kind of what we were talking about before with, like, recall with governors and all that. It's not just these representatives being elected or being recallable. It's everyone that's being propped up and is involved in the state apparatus that is also elected and recallable, which is very important, I think. Oh, yeah. But what about – how do we feel about the salary? Because he's harped on this a few times now that, um, you know, the highest salary paid by the commune to any of these – uh I don't know if we can call them politicians, representatives, whatever, was the same, about the same that a normal worker makes. Yeah, it's like like averaging it to like what the average worker made. How, okay, so obviously like in the system we have now, uh, (laughs) like people in Congress make substantially more than the average worker, but still way, 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 way less than they would make in the private sector. And they have managed to figure out how to use their positions to sort of, you know, move back and forth, mm-hmm. maybe do a little insider trading. Um, right, right, right. I, I'm just thinking about, um, I'm also thinking about that scene in House of Cards where, you know, our canceled, what's his name? Fucking Kevin Spacey yep. is like, uh, he's like, Remy, he chose money over power. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was wrong. <laughs> he's a fool, <laughs> you know? Like maybe there's more than one kind of uh, currency that people would amass. Their Kevin Spacey impression of doing a Southern accent is really (laughs) funny. Thanks. I'm glad you like it. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's important to remember the context that, you know, Lennon and Engels are writing in a bit, but also I feel like there's an element here that's involved. You know, if you're, wage is pegged to like what the average worker in whatever thing you're you're involved in the society you're in makes then there's some incentive to well raise that wage up for workers right you know if, if your direct pay is tied to what most workers make you're gonna want to make that go up and guess what that's a good thing for many workers yeah. now i want to look it up and see what the average worker makes in the United States. Oh, it's like, well, median wage is not so well. It's a pretty pretty low. It's like 40K, I think. Mm-mm-mm, looking it up. In 2020, the average wage and salary per full-time equivalent employee in the United States was 71,456 US dollars. But f- average is not necessarily the best indicator because there's a lot of people who make a lot of money in the United States. So oh, right. let's look up the median wage. The median wage, oh yeah, it's about 40 40 grand. Ugh. So, yeah, no, can you imagine? 
I guess that would be a pretty big difference. Well, yeah, because I think Congress Congress if people Congress make like one hundred seventy five k forty grand. They might approach things a little bit differently. Very huh? differently. But I mean, there's also nuances there. You know, some state legislatures, for instance, pay very little for the reps, and that makes it such that only the very wealthy can become mm. reps as well. Mm. So there. So, but I think. Pegging it to what the average worker makes does resolve that a lot because you're making it such that, well, oh, well, I can barely live. Well, guess what, buddy? You're making what most workers barely live. Like the most workers can barely live. Yeah. Well, Pugsley has some thoughts on that. Meow, meow. I don't know. I don't know if she's going to show up on the recording. But get, she's. Get our asses. She's being really, really talkative right now. Oh my God! Listen, if only we could understand Cat, we would understand the true the true way to resolve this conflict. That's right. Come here, baby. No, cats are saying fucked up shit. You don't want to know. So to go back to the text, there's this point that Lennon's making about the the (laughs) name. Your part is over. (laughs) (laughs) I want to shut you in the other room. Shall we continue? Okay, let's continue. <laughs> All right. Recentering now. There's this part that Lenin's making in terms of what Engel said with regards to the, the right for nations to have to self-determine. You know, quote. <laughs> <laughs> the right for cats to self-determine oh when they God. get fed. <laughs> <laughs> oh okay. So, quote, Engels, however, did not make the Marxist... Did not make some mistake Marxists make in dealing with the question of nations to self-determination. What what was this kind of, you know, mistake? You know, essentially what Lenin's saying is that Engels believed that there are nations that have the right to self-determine, which is, you know, kind of going back a bit to what he said that, you know, some societies need to address the national question. And this is an important part because this kind of leads to the larger, you know, some aspect, but, you know, can be addressed in other works. The theoretical underpinning of Marxist Leninism with the way that that framework has played out in history in national liberation struggles, that some societies need to have the right to self-determine, uh, you know, obviously, as communists, we believe in the abolition of all countries, the abolition of all states. That's right. The cl- but the claim that Lenin's making here, and it claims that Engels did not make this mistake that he says that some Marxists make, is that the national question needs to be concluded and resolved first for some societies, because until that that is addressed we cannot move forward with resolving and moving towards the abolition of that state in that society. I'm going to say that's TBD. I mean, like if you were a society that was under colonialism, you need to first develop as a society that can govern itself first and being able to understand the contradictions of your own society. I'm again going to say that that's TBD in relationship to global communism, but that is where I and the Marxist Leninists disagree. Regardless, moving forward, there is a section regarding what democracy looks like 
and what, what Engels said and what democracy looked like in the Paris Commune, but also for the transition to socialism, that democracy needs to be taken together, not separately. Quote, taken separately, no kind of democracy will bring socialism, but in actual life, democracy will never be taken separately. It will be taken together with other things. It will exert its influence on economic life as well, will stimulate its transformation, and its turn, it will be developed by economic development, and so on. This is the dialectics of living history. There's another long quote, apologies ahead of time, but it's an important one. This shattering of the former state power and its replacement by a new and truly democratic one is described in detail in the third section of the Civil War. But it was meaning ne- the Civil War in France. Yes. Sorry to butt in. Yeah, sorry. No, that's the Civil War in France. That's what Engels is claiming here. But it was necessary to touch briefly here, once more, on some of its features, because in Germany particularly, the superstitious belief in the state has passed from philosophy into the general consciousness of the bourgeoisie and even of many workers. According to the philosophical to the philosophical conception, the state is the realization of the idea or the kingdom of God on earth, translated into philosophical terms, the sphere in which eternal truth and justice are or should be realized. And you know, kind of an aside, this is a little bit of a reference to what Hegel says in the philosophy of right about what the state is. But that's that's like a total digression. Going back to the quote. And from this follows a superstitious reverence for the state and everything connected with it, which takes root the more readily since people are accustomed from childhood to imagine that the affairs and interests common to the whole of society cannot be looked after other than as they have been looked after in the past. That is, through the state and its lucratively positioned officials. And people think they have taken quite an extraordinary bold step forward when they have rid themselves of belief in hereditary monarchy and swear by the democratic republic. In reality, however, the state is nothing but a machine for the oppression of one class by another, and indeed, in a democratic republic no less than in the monarchy. And at best, it is an evil inherited by the proletariat after its vicious struggle for class supremacy, whose war sides the victorious proletariat will have to lop off as, seeply, as speedily as possible, just as the commune had to, until a generation reared in new free social conditions is able to discard the entire lumber of the state. End quote. So, Engels warned the Germans here. To not forget principles of socialism regarding the state. There are two remarks, two last remarks that Lenin ends with. The first of which, the state remains a state. It will remain a machine for the oppression of one class by another. Doesn't matter if it's a democratic republic or a monarchy. And the other one, only a new generation will be able to remove the state. We'll touch that later on, but there's just one more part that we need to discuss. 
Do you have any thoughts, Jim, before we move on? Oh, boy. I mean, I guess he's obviously talking about the bourgeois state here because he thinks a worker state is so different that it should be called something completely. It's like it's like, you know, how like Coke and Diet Coke are such different tasting drinks that they really shouldn't be called both Coke. They should be called like Coke and Bob or something. Yeah, I kind of feel like that's what he thinks about the the bourgeois state and the worker state. No, Coke is monarchy. Coke Diet Coke is liberal democracy. Coke Zero is a worker state. Oh shit! Well, then worker state. You're the Coke Zero and Diet Coke are basically the same flavor. So um, they're very different. All right, but Diet Coke is approaching the worker state. Hmm. Coke Zero. I suppose. I mean, that analogy really is hanging on whether <laughs> people think that those things taste the same. So, I mean, I don't drink Coke at all, so I just don't even know how they taste anymore. Really? Wow. Good for you, man. I'll drink a, a Mexican Coke from time to time. Oh, I mean, yes, I do that, bottle. but I don't really drink Coke in general. Well, neither do I, but I drink it more than I drink Diet Coke. Fair enough. So, I, I don't really drink Diet Coke at all. So maybe my analogy fails. No, you know what? I feel like it's good, though. <laughs> I mean, look, here's what Lennon would say about the analogy. You can say what you want, but I'll still drink that garbage. Oh, wait, Trump said that. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> maybe communism is Mexican Coke because it's the good one. I mean, I obviously am biased <laughs> by my homeland Coke. There's just like, I mean, it's, it's so gross. It's just like fucking chemicals and sugar. But it, when you have it out of a glass bottle and it's really hot out, there's just something about it. Like, I swear to God, it tastes different than uh, just like getting a normal American Coke. I don't know. Yeah. And, you know, talking about overcoming things that are really annoying. Let's go to the next section. Angles on the overcoming of democracy. Oh, wow. Good transition, man. You know, we got to talk about, you know, we got to overcome American Coke with Mexican Coke. We got to overcome liberal democracy with proletarian democracy. So for this last section, Lenin wanted to focus on why Engels viewed it necessary to distinguish himself from the word social democrat and emphasize the use of the word communist. The following quote is from a preface to a collection of Engels articles during the 1870s dated January 3rd, 1894. I'm throwing the rubber band for her so that she'll leave us alone because this cat likes to play fetch. Oh, man. <laughs> yes. Yes, everyone. Pugsley. Jamie has a cat that loves to play fetch. Think about that. That's Pugsley Adams. So here's the quote. For Marx and myself, continued Engels, it was therefore absolutely impossible to use such a loose term to characterize our special point of view. Today, things are different, and the word social democrat may perhaps pass muster, inexact though it is, still is for a part whose economic program is not merely socialist in general, but downright communist, and whose ultimate political aim is to overcome the whole state and consequently democracy as well. The names of Real political parties, however, are never wholly appropriate. The party develops while the name stays. End of quote. Mm. 
Lenin digresses to discuss the name of his own workers' party, the Bolsheviks, as being one of a curious nature. The English translation of Bolsheviks approximately is majority, and this is merely a co- consequence of a historical accident of sorts because they grew out of a split at the Brussels-London Congress of the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party in 1903, and they, the Bolsheviks, were the majority faction. Lenin views such a name as a curious artifact and proposed a compromise by renaming the party to simply the Communist Party and retain Bolshevik in brackets. Oh, that's where that came from. Yeah. You see that a lot. Nonetheless, Lenin views the topic of the name of a workers' party as a less important than what is the attitude of the revolutionary proletariat to the state. So here Lenin continues from his digression. We will read the entirety of what remains in this chapter because it is short and better to quote directly here so for us to understand for the people who are listening at home. And this is where we will end this the section of the of the end of this chapter. We'll read the rest of this and we'll talk about it as we go along. Not too long. Stay here. We're almost done. <laughs> in the usual argument about the state, the mistake is constantly made against which Angles warned, and which we have in passing indicated above. Namely, it is constantly forgotten that the abolition of the state means also the abolition of democracy. That the withering away of the state means the withering away of democracy. At first sight, this assertion seems exceedingly strange and incomprehensible. Indeed, Someone may even suspect us of expecting the advent of a system of society in which the principle of subordination of the minority to the majority will not be observed, for democracy means the recognition of this very principle. No, democracy is not identical with the subordination of the minority to the majority. Democracy is a state which recognizes the subordination of the minority to the majority. In other words, an organization for the systematic use of force by one class against another, by one section of the population against another. Now, what do we think about this? Like, what, In terms of like, what do, what do we think he meant by this last portion we just read? I mean, I find it a little bit confusing. Um... As far as I can tell, uh, he's talking about how, you know, stuff will eventually run on its own and maybe right. these political battles will be over. So, like, we won't need representative democracy anymore. Yeah, I mean, the reason he, it's a very subtle thing he's doing here, because he says democracy is not the same thing as a minor, the subordination of the minority. Yeah, then what is it? It's like, oh, he, you vote on shit. Right. And, you know, the one with the, the thing with the most votes wins. Like, what is it? He if says, it's not that. No, it's very subtle. He says democracy is a state that does that. He, a, uh, like state in what sense of the word? Like like a state, like a like kind of like liberal democracy, like a, like a republic. Like a state of affairs or no. like the the workers state. Oh, I guess like a workers state or a democratic republic or a monarchy, like that kind of state. I see. Capital S state. Like it's like it is a state which then recognizes that that exists. So he says in other words, an organization for the systematic use 
of force by one class against another. So what's going on, at least in my opinion, is that there's a kind of a thing is that democracy is allowable because there's this kind of like one of what you're saying, Jamie, people are voting and we're pushing people up in terms of representation. But if we want to abolish a worker state, we want to have it wither away. Democracy is a thing that's occurring because that is occurring in the state. So if we overcome that worker state, we have overcome democracy because everybody's participating freely. Basically, we have arrived at now this is a small S state, state of affairs, this society that there is a free association of people together. I mean, all right. Uh, I'm still not 100% sure on the distinction that he's making here, other than maybe uh, it's it's like this emphasizing the fact that the state as it exists grows out of whatever the balance of power is in a society mm-hmm. and not the other way around. Sure. You know, like whatever democracy, whatever state exists is the result of whatever battles have already been fought and won or lost. And it's not the thing causing them. Uh, It's also reminding me again, I like, we do need to read Bortiga, I think, because what he's talking about as this final state of affairs really sounds a lot like um, Bortiga's concept of organic centralism, which is, uh, I mean, again, this might be where I get off the the trolley. with uh with these galaxy brained ideas um but bordiga is said by many to be like more lenin than lenin so he i think that's a bit nonsense personally but so he was well he was like you know lenin's idea about organic centralism or not organic about democratic centralism is a good one but it needs to be even less democratic mm. and he came up with a thing called organic centralism where you know, the party is perfectly in sync with the people, with the workers from which it arises. And it's not that you need to ban factions, which is a thing that happened uh, with the Bolshevik party. Um, it's that if factions arise, it means you already fucked up somewhere down the line and you need to deal with that. And in a weird way, like it sounds very similar to what we're talking about here. Well, if you if we want to talk about it at some point or you want to hear more about it, stay tuned to a later episode we'll talk about, which will still need to be done. Yeah. Stay tuned on Bordiga. Yeah, sure. But like, I guess it's also different because, you know, when the state withers away, there's not a party controlling everything. Uh, we don't think. But again, like... My question is always the same, which is, uh, you know, if the worker state or the dictatorship of the proletariat is so great and so democratic, um, why would we even want to get rid of it? And what forces would compel us to do so? I think this is where... We talked about near the beginning of this episode about the revolution from below, basically sup- supplementing this worker state by this kind of revolution from below, such that inevitably everything kind of just do- just happens over time. People become adjusted to that. But 
But continue reading this, the rest of this, sec- yeah. this section. Let's, it's we're, almost done. We're, Let's we're, read the rest there, of it. There is like something that's hinting toward what you're saying, Jamie. Okay, let's go. So just a few more and we're almost done. So we set ourselves the ultimate aim of abolishing the state. In other words, all organized and systematic violence. All use of violence against people in general. Sounds good. We do not expect the advent of a system of society in which the principle of subordination of the minority to the majority will not be observed. In striving for socialism, however, we are convinced that it will develop into communism and, therefore, that the need for violence against people in general for the subordination of, the, of one man to another and of one section of the population to another will vanish altogether since people will become accustomed to observing the elementary conditions of social life without violence and without subordination. In order to emphasize this element of habit, and we're getting to what you were talking about right now, Engel speaks of a new generation reared in new, free social conditions, which will be able to discard the entire labor, I'm sorry, the entire lumber of the state, of any state, including the democratic republican state. Lenin concludes this chapter that in order to explain what exactly is meant about the new generation being reared in new, free social conditions, that it is necessary to analyze what he names the economic basis of the withering away of the state. Basically, what are the material conditions necessary in order for the state to wither away? It's a good question. Which addresses to what we were just talking about. And to those listening, stay tuned to what's going on in our next episode on Chapter 5. That's a very good setup. Chapter 5, The Economic Basis of the Withering Way of the State. So stay tuned. And if you like what you heard, remember what we said, be sure to subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash everybodylovescommunism or fans.fm slash everybodylovescommunism. If you want to hear more about our updates, go to our Twitter at twitter.com slash elcpod. And if you really like what you heard, be sure to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You're so much better than me at doing the plugs. It's not even funny. Well, (laughs) until next time, do the reading. Do the reading. Or not, because I feel like we, especially in this one, just really kind of told you everything. Yeah. That's part of our job. We do the reading so you don't have to. Yep. But also, if you did other reading than us, you know, feel free to, like, send us stuff and uh, enrich enrich our show. DM us yeah. on Twitter or Instagram. That's right. We have an Instagram. Check us out at Everybody Loves Communism. Hell yeah. <laughs>